1: Hello again. You are right? Not too bad. Not too bad. Still dark and grey and miserable. (laughs) Perfect podcasting weather.
2: But we're here to cheer ourselves up
1: and hopefully... Exactly. I was going to
2: say one or two two listeners. Both of
1: them. Yeah, cheer them up. Um, (laughs) I'll tell you what cheered me up today. Yeah, Um, I've got a little box in the post. Uh, On the front of it, it had a picture of Alan Partridge, which obviously piqued my curiosity. Opened it up. And it was a, a, an actual parcel from the man himself, from Alan Partridge. Um, what was in it? it was a, well, it was a copy of his new book. Oh, yeah. Okay. It, was, it was a mug um, with his face in it, which sadly he'd smashed. I don't know if that's part of the <laughs> gag or whether uh, <laughs> it was just Royal <laughs> Mail cocking up again. Um, a Pear Tree Productions pen and a scented candle that said um, The Smell of Alan's Big Beacon because his book's oh, called The Big Beacon. Uh, so, but anyway, so I've got a letter here oh, right, from Alan okay. Partridge. Yeah, which read, it, was, read, it, you know, read it out. As a fan of him as you know, one of the all-time favorite broadcasters it's uh, it's great to get a letter from him it says hello mate just a quick one mate i've written another searing memoir and just thought i'd send a few copies to a few of my closest friends obviously mate you come pretty high on that list so here's yours a little gift from one mate to another mate nothing more than that anyway that was all it was hope so hope all's well with you mate cheers friend all the best buddy speak soon pal bye <laughs> Oh, shit, nearly forgot to say, if you do enjoy the book and you did want to say holler about it on TV, radio, social media, amongst friends, brackets, large groups only, please, or a national newspaper, then that'd be cool by me, mate. I know what you're like, and I I know what kind of support one mate gives to another mate, which obviously is what we are. Obviously, I'll do the same for you, mate. If you've got anything you're proud of, bung it my way, and after running running it by my team, I'll consider it. In selective cases, giving it the big chops on my socials, no biggie. Why wouldn't I? We're mates. <laughs> anyway, enjoy the book and enjoy talking about it to people. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Cheers, mate. Bye, mate. Thanks again, mate. Your mate,
2: Alan. Well, since you're there such you good go. mates, since he's going to come yeah. on a podcast, then you can get him. We should. Podcast. Well, like, that's a very good point, Matt. That's a very good point.
1: <laughs> we, yeah, so we,
2: we should at least ask. It'll be a, a tumbling in silence. That but... would be
1: a. That would be a coup and a half, wouldn't it? Ah, that would be absolutely I have met him once. I have met Steve Coogan once. Oh, really?
2: Like at some do or something?
1: It was his... Well, I met him twice, actually. I met him randomly backstage in a green room um, when I was doing Eight Out of Ten Cats, I think it was, or maybe it was Would I Lie to You? And he was doing a different show, and we crossed paths, and I was just starstruck and had a chat. And then he invited me to the premiere of Alpha Papa, the movie. Great. And at the end of it, we went to so sort of, um, it was there's an after show party thing, and we were told to wait around for the we'll get a cab down and there'll be a car for you and stuff. And we thought everyone had gone and we'd been left behind and forgotten, but no, that was Steve Coogan in his limousine for me and Sarah. So the three of us no. turned up at the yeah yeah, and he was just interested chatting about. He was into mountain biking and chatting about bikes and stuff. I was, oh, i
2: will definitely ask him then.
1: Yeah, try well, and... well, yeah, I mean, that was a long time ago. That was about 10 years ago, but...
2: He'll, he'll, rem- he'll remember it vividly. Oh, Rob's... Uh, oh, Rob, <laughs> this is spoiling the surprise, but Rob Orton is our guest today, and he's uh-huh. in, in the waiting room, so we shall let him in and he can reveal all. Hey, Rob. Hello, can you hear me now? Yeah,
0: I got you now. Yeah, perfect. perfect. Is that sound? Doing? I'm doing all right. How are you guys? Very good. well, good. thanks. Nice to meet you. I'm sorry if I look a bit mad. I'm in my um, podcast mode. So, hold on, I'll just get this sound right. So, um, is that okay to record or do you need something else? Or
2: No, that sounds that sounds fine. But
0: yeah. you are renowned for your mic work, aren't
1: you? I've seen one of the little yeah. clips. Yeah, oh, yeah. thank Some you. Some of the reviews you've yeah. been getting.
0: Yeah, I know. Crazy. But um, <laughs> I'm all right. You guys all right? Yeah, good. We're very well.
1: Yeah, we're just mourning about the weather as, as we tend to do and Catching up, but yeah, worse things to do than sit around nice and warm and dry, recording something that probably no one's going to ever listen to.
0: You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I know it's funny that, isn't it? I always get so stressed in these situations as well, but I'm all right. Especially when I'm speaking to, you know. Oh. Thanks so much for having me on this podcast. Really, really appreciate it. And uh, oh. yeah, great, great to meet you guys. And uh, yeah, no, it's good, man. And, like I'm, I'm into, I'm into sports, but not, not in a huge way. But I do love um, talking in general. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've come to the right place. Excellent. Yeah, great. How long? How long have you been doing this podcast for? Quite a while, haven't you? Oh, how many is it, Matt? We've
1: done about twenty. Well, it's been yeah, over six did, months, isn't it? Yeah, we
2: did a first season of twenty-five, and then we're we're, we're on a gap, and we're just recording some for season two now. So um, yeah, it's great. It's been how's good it, fun. How's it been going?
1: It's been. I've I've absolutely loved it, and it's yeah. kind of our. It's basically. You know, we're, we're just being very self indulgent, and it's our chance to meet, you know, our comedy heroes and chat to funny people who we admire. So it's, yeah, whether or not anybody else is listening or has enjoyed <laughs> it, I have no idea. But um, it's been fun from our perspective. And yeah, it's yeah been, no. we've met some cool folk. You're so
0: I listened to the um, Kieran Hodgson episode, who's great. Oh, yeah. Our comedy yeah. chums. Yeah. He's brilliant. Good guy. Yeah. Did you see the video he did where he was doing all the impressions from uh, Happy Valley? seen that no, no no it's worth digging up i mean yeah his 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 impressions are absolutely remarkable we well, did a few on the show didn't he on the chat it was, his it
2: rowing was... coach had me in pieces <laughs> he, the story he, of yeah. his like guy just shouting and basically bullying them through there come on guys <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah he was he was brilliant so yeah, no pressure, but that's the kind of level we're expecting from you, Rob. No, exactly. or,
0: you know, Look, I'll you know. try, but if this gets if this if this gets twenty minutes in, you're like, why are we speaking to this guy? <laughs> no pressure. Just pull the plug, and then you can go and get on with your days. But I've got some good stuff to talk about. I think. Do you, you, you,
2: You've got a tour. Well, you've, it's just about to begin, or you've done. You did a date the other day, or I can't. It's January. Did, is the main. I did.
0: Uh, I did two date. I did. Uh, two shows in Margate in a place called the Tom Thumb Theatre that's, I think they say it's the smallest theatre space in Europe, and they've had to make it smaller because of uh, uh, the sound bleed that was coming from the venue, so they've taken some of the seats out, so I think there's about, well, there's about 40 seats, so I did two shows, one at six and one at eight, and it was good. Um did so sell out though i suppose you know it did yeah, yeah. so it's, <laughs> at least you can do that and then and then next year from january i'm just like yeah doing doing a lot of dates and then going to australia and doing it there i went there for the first time last year and did comedy and like yeah i couldn't believe it just loved it Be are like, you australia well, fans Oh, I love Australia. I used,
2: love
1: it. Yeah. We used to go and you're Europe there fairly regularly, aren't you, Matt, for work?
2: Yeah.
1: But yeah, we used to go out every every year. Yeah. Uh, Perth, Perth mainly, but Melbourne as well. Melbourne's one of my favourite cities in the world. But um, yeah, it's one of the things I miss most from not being a full time athlete is getting away from the British winter yeah. and spending it out in Australia. You know, under the the premise of training, technically, but when you're working hard and you're obviously physically working hard, but such a wonderful environment to be in and, you know, I love I love the Australians just the general attitude to life and and fun and it's just yeah it's a great place.
0: Yeah, I couldn't believe it how um I'm not I mean obviously knew it was a long way away but the the feeling of it it just felt like a completely different world you know it felt like all the trees were just so much more kind of up for it you know it's like the, the <laughs> sun has done something to everything that's alive on that in that place you know including the people I feel like they're so kind of they're not chasing something to feel okay. Do you know what I mean? It's as if they've got enough vitamin D in them to kind of settle them down a bit. And then when you get back to England and everyone's like, ah, I've got to try really hard at work. That might make me feel okay. And then, you know. Oh, <laughs> uh, you're right. Even
1: even this sort of the set response that you have, you know, you say, you know, you say hello to look at somebody in the UK. How are you doing? Yeah, not bad. You know, not bad is the standard response. Whereas in Australia, how are you doing? Good, mate. Good. You know, it's yeah. always it's positive, and it's it's everybody's in the front foot. And I don't know. It's I do. Don't get me wrong. I love our country. It's great. But certainly, there's something about sunshine that that just cheers everybody up, even if it's there all the time. I don't think you ever get complacent about it. And I do. Yeah, I do miss being in Australia on a regular basis. But maybe I'll find an excuse to get back there sometime soon. Yeah, we, we could go and do a pod there, Matt. Just you know, yeah, you're the the um. We could get that in the budget.
2: I remember I covered you at World Championships in Australia in Melbourne. Which year would that have been? Before the uh, London yeah, Olympics? I
1: did it. Twice. Oh, before London would be twenty twelve. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It was twenty twelve, yeah. right before the London.
2: I remember going out for that. Yeah, that, was, that was a
1: sketchy. That was a bit of a up and down worlds for me. I pulled it out of the bag with a bit of luck in the queue, but the other two events didn't go well. So,
0: but apart well, from that, so is that how you guys met then? Through yeah,
2: um, reporting. Yeah, yeah. So I would just cover a lot of Olympic sports. Track cycling being one of them, obviously leading up to the Olympics, it got bigger and bigger. So I would just be sitting in the middle of the village, I'm watching Chris go around quickly and then harassing him with questions both before and after. It was about as simple as that.
1: Right. Well, he was a friendly face, though. Yeah. (laughs) It's funny because it's a a very small sport, track cycling, and there are a a handful of journalists that would follow it around the the kind of less major championships, the World Cups, the Europeans, all these stuff. And then you get all the kind of mass media come for the Olympics, and that's it. And you get, you get the press conference, press conferences where they ask these ridiculous questions, you know, that the serious ones like Matt and, you know, my pals, Richard Moore and Will Fotheringham and Brendan Gallagher, these guys would just sort of like shake their heads and look in embarrassment and kind of go, I'm terribly sorry about my <laughs> colleagues here. but nothing to do with us. These guys, you know, asking about the size of your thighs or about your, you know, whether you still had a rally chopper or what you know it's like all that sort of stuff and, and they would Matt, guys at like Matt would cringe this serious journalist who knew what they're talking about who actually followed followed the sport for a bit for longer than 10 minutes so what yeah what kind of, what kind of sports are you into Rob? Are you have you got any that you're particularly you follow or that you did as a kid or that you have any affinity to
0: yeah I mean the sports that I was attracted to as a child re- really were mainly like uh, one person sports so fishing and golf really i think that's mainly because they both the equipment for both sat next to each other in the argos catalog <laughs> and the um, <laughs> you know that double page spread <laughs>
2: those, like,
0: take your time tools i love that looking at so you got your fishing there you got your golf and my dad would and i know people would say it's fishing a sport but with this we're going to have to talk like for me i, I loved those one person sports because I was the only person that I could let down really. And um, I feel the same with my career, even though I do like working with teams, in teams, but though I like golf, fishing, I loved, but my parents really did cast the nets of like, oh, maybe Robert would enjoy very, very wide. Like they they took me, they were like, they would tried me at everything. And, it, you know, I remember they said, uh, they started doing karate in like the village hall and they said Do you want to go to the karate class i was like no and then i went i went there anyway and it was more just like angry dancing for kids really and, uh, I didn't, uh, so i went there once and um uh, one of the little lads from the village got the sensei i don't know why he picked him up and kind of just put him in this small bin he was like no you're not you know you can't do it again so that class didn't last for very long and um so i did that but then the ma- the main one really that i have played in for in a team for was cricket so they they said um well i know how it shook down it was because where i went to get my hair cut it was one of these places where um you know it's just like your mum's mate in the living room and um the telly's on and and uh they they like put a towel down in the front room and you're there and you're getting your hair cut and um and uh her husband uh ran the local uh under 13s cricket team i think so i started they kind of pulled a few strings and were like oh you know i can roll come and do training so i did it and um yeah, I started playing for the under-13s cricket team. I played for three years and never scored a competitive run. <laughs> True story. Yeah, but we, we
1: were chatting to Mark Woods, you know, professional cricketer, World Cup winner, and he reckoned his batting wasn't that great either. So, you know, you're in good company there. As long yeah. as you can bowl at like
0: 100 miles an hour, then you're fine, I suppose. You can well, use exactly that, that. Yeah. I was hitting it. All my teammates were shouting, run! I was like, what from? <laughs> You've got to stand your ground in this life. <laughs> <laughs> but, um... No, I was, I was an alright bowler. That was the thing. Okay. I was kind of accurate. But um, like I knew what I wanted to do and I got it on target. It's just it took quite a long time for it to get there. <laughs> and, and this what, what happened was, I remember what, one time in, in particular, we were playing against the best team in the county, right? It was a team called Escrick in Yorkshire. And... Um, I was bowling against this huge child batsman, right? I mean, that the thing is with puberty, it happens to different people at different times, right? So he had a beard, this guy, and it was it was just ridiculous. And I bowled the ball, and it kind of pitched. I remember it pitched about two meters in front of me, and it, because I'd let go of it too late, and and it kind of the ball pummeled into the ground in front of me and started kind of gently rolling towards the batter and the batter actually had time to look down at the ball then look up at me then back down at the ball which isn't a good time for a (laughs) ball. and uh, he started sidestepping towards the ball like almost jogging up to it big smile on his face swung missed it and my ball had just enough momentum in it to gently hit the wicket and knock the bells off the stumps, and he absolutely lost it. That's like one of my—that's my biggest in <laughs> memory. That's brilliant. And the—he was like, "No!" And he chucked his bat, and it was like flying through the air, you know. And um, the, he was like, "That doesn't count." I wasn't expecting a ball to be as bad as that. At this level. <laughs> and um, and uh, the umpire went like that, and it was out. And you know, it's—it st- it still counts to me that day. And oh yeah, of course it counts. But this is it. I was speaking to someone recently, like one of my comedian friends, and he'd done a um, pro-arm golf tournament thing. With, and he was paired with Nick Faldo. God. And he said that he was really happy to talk about his uh, memories of good golf shots. And I just, I thought, well, yeah, because memories of good golf shots are amazing memories. And, like, who wouldn't want to talk about that? And I think that's the thing with like sporting memories. I think maybe because it involves all of you, like the body and things like that, maybe they're so vivid because it's like such an all encompassing thing. It's not like someone's saying something to you, it's because it's like you're fully there and you're fully present. And, like, I mean, obviously, Nick Faldo's hit some amazing golf shots, but even me, like, last time I went playing golf, was um just in the summer and i'd recently got some new clubs and um i was going with my sister soon to be husband and we were playing and i'd been trying to get my dad to come and walk around with us this golf course at killick Percy, killick Percy in yorkshire that we used to play on as i was a kid and um me and my dad used to go around and i was like oh come on dad you know i've been going to the driving range i can really hit it a long way now and um he came round, and we were on this first tee, and I, when when we used to go round when I was little, I, I used to hit some up, really fudge it sometimes, and i have been going to this driving range, the Greenwich Penin- Peninsula um, near Stratford, and um, I got on this first tee, and Dad was there watching, and like I absolutely just tonked it down the middle of the fairway, oh, and it's, it's on a hill, <laughs> you get over the hill, and it, it must have caught a good bounce, and it went, you know, but... 330 yards or something. Wow. It was, it was just big, only because of its bounce. I'll say, no, let's say 300, 280. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, it was, 150. it 150. Yeah, went, yeah <laughs> basically yeah, I topped it, but normally I don't hit it, but it was, um, it was amazing. And I'll, I think I'll probably remember that forever, you know, and I think especially with golf, those golf shot memories are just incredible, aren't
1: they? And they're the ones that bring you back, though, because you have so many, or I, you know, I played very, I played, I do not play for about five or six years, but I only took it up when I was about 30, so I've only got a very short period of time that I've, I've played it for, so very, very poor at it. But you remember the good bits, because there's so many bad bits, there's so many terrible shots in a round, but at the end of the round, you don't think <laughs> about the number of times you shanked it up into the bushes. You remember that one drive off the tee, where it went ping off the, right in the centre of the club, and it down the middle of the fairway and it's that's it's that feeling that brings you back isn't it that's what what it's not the 100 shots that are terrible it's the one that's good that's the one that
0: you remember and the one that you makes you want to keep going yeah absolutely and i feel like comedy can be a bit like that as well like even if during a set you get like one massive laugh or something happens within the room and you get everyone on side and you're like oh wow and it is that thing of going That's a good experience. I want that again. Let's do that. And it's the same with everything, though, isn't it? I feel like it must be the same with, like, you know, writing is the same of going where you, if you, if you, if you you like hit a good sentence, you're like, right, brilliant. Yeah. And you, or you feel like you at least got, you've got something. You know, I love that phrase where people say, oh, he's got a goal in him, you know, (laughs) with football. And I feel like that's the same with, like, oh, he's got a good shot in you, you've got a good, you got a good uh, joke in you or something like that, yeah.
2: But the golf yeah, issue, you'd hit this amazing shot, let's say, at two hundred and eighty yards, but then the next shot can be utter dog shits, can't it? I mean that's the yeah, bit that, that k- kills me.
0: Yeah, same here. So that on that hole, <laughs> I I was so I was like within I could have um got onto the green in two, but I just completely fudged it to the right and then tried to chip on missed the green chipped on and then three putted and then got like a seven or something (laughs) (laughs) and 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 then dad was obviously like yep nothing's changed (laughs) (laughs) but i love it i think that's the best thing about sport and it's just it just especially now just to get you out of your head for a bit and with out in the air and just i've been i listened to quite a lot of um different motivational speakers and experts online. And someone was saying the other day that you've got to try to get to a state of no words somehow. And I think I've been running, I live right near Victoria Park in London and I've been doing quite a lot of running. And that certainly gets me to a state of no words when, you know, your body just takes over and you're like, whoa, flipping <laughs> head. And my, my, Girlfriend at the time, No Wife Victoria, right? She said she'd been going to this thing called One Rebel. Do you know about this? One Rebel, the spinning classes. Oh, I have heard of them,
1: yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that so, one they have like other they do other stuff on it, like weights and things while they're doing it? It's like a kind of a
0: Yeah,
1: mean, body thing.
0: Yeah, there's one in Victoria um near the station there and basically they're like nightclubs with exercise bikes in. And you get these people who are um, really, you know, they're motivational speakers. They're really fit. they're going for it, and they're like, they put you through your paces on it. And um, Victoria loves it. She was like, "Oh, come on! Why don't you? Why don't you come? You, you know, you do it. Come on!" And like, I hadn't really ridden a bike for ages, and or oh, really done any exercise, but I got on the bike. The music was pumping, and you know, I didn't want to slow down so I ended up just going too fast for too long so I couldn't really feel my legs anymore. <laughs> and then the class finished. And then I tried to stand I couldn't stand up and I was just on the floor. And then all the like really fit people who go all the time were just kind of walking past me. And I just remember kind of looking up with that because I feel it was like full of like, smoke machines and all sorts of stuff and you're just like flipping out. <laughs> I shouldn't have done that.
1: But that's how you're supposed to. You've done it well, in my opinion. You've yeah. done it absolutely right. If you're walking out of a, a spin class and you're sort of light on your feet, you've not given enough. The fact that you were on the floor—that's—that's that's what I used to I mean. I, I think people assume the fitter you get, the easier it gets. But it's the opposite. The fitter you get, the harder you can push yourself, <laughs> and the more damage you can do to yourself in a short space of time. So you, I think, yeah, I would say, well done. That's that's you. You did exactly what you're supposed to do.
0: Think was it? Who was it? Was it Muhammad Ali? Would only he said that he'd only start counting how many press ups he'd done when it started to hurt. Is that right? To, he'd do many as many so easy, and then when it started to hurt, he'd start counting, or someone like that. Yeah, Might have been that sounds like a Muhammad Ali thing to say. That sounds pretty. Yeah, uh, I really like um, Arnold Schwarzenegger's motivational quotes as well. I think like his journey is just unbelievable, isn't it? Like going into weightlifting and thinking. Oh, I'll never be able to doing it, and then going in. No, I can't go into acting, and then doing it, and then going into politics like that. It's just, it's just amazing, though. I saw him
1: a video of him recently, um, talking about how he's saying you shouldn't have a plan B. He said, you know, in life, only have one plan, and then you don't have that to fall back on. Therefore, you commit one hundred percent to that one plan. And I can, I do get that, and I do kind of, I understand the logic. But equally, I think. It instills it. it puts a lot of pressure on yourself to do that one thing, and you, you can't envisage anything else happening. But um, but no, he's he's a, he is an incredibly engaging personality as well. You you can see why he's an, a successful politician and why he was a successful um, movie star because people you, you kind of draws people to him. He's very magnetic.
0: Absolutely, I saw I saw Quentin Tarantino say something similar where he said I I didn't want to have a fallback plan because I didn't want to fall back, and I. Um, definitely took a leap of faith when I went full-time doing comedy. Um, and I think it's really important to um, not have that of going, oh, you know, I could get a job, da, 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 and just start going into the, the unknown and just kind of having the safety net taken away from you. Um, but unfortunately, the safety net never kind of arrives. I feel like it's like, even if you're at the top of your game and you're doing arenas and things like that fair enough the safety net of money might arrive but then the safety net of what you're going to do next if you've just done a sellout arena tour like where do you go from there (laughs) i always think about that with like the arctic monkeys and like bands who've really done well like if you stop writing then it just stops i know you can do your old songs but like Mm. you've got to keep going i think it's like Uh, it's like it's it's
1: it's tough tough for performers whether it's comedy or music or actors because in theory you could go on till you're in your 80s you know there's no reason why you would stop working The people you know it, it's, it's almost greeted with raised eyebrows when someone in their 60s or 70s says that's it I'm, out. I'm not acting anymore i've given up they're like well what why are you giving up whereas like for sport you retire in some sports you retire in your mid-20s and you know that, that's tough because you don't get to do what you love for your whole life um, competitively but i think there's an awful lot of pressure as you say if you don't keep getting number one albums or selling out, you know, arenas or whatever, then it's seen as, ah, your career started to to trickle off now and tail, tail off a little bit. And, you know, you're not as big a success as you were in the nineties or the eighties or whatever. Um, so I guess that, yeah, that must be a huge amount of pressure, but also motivation because you you have to keep working and you have to keep coming up with new things.
0: Yeah. And I think that's the thing, especially with, um, doing Edinburgh year in, year out doing the festival and trying to think of, um, another um, show to do is uh, it's great. It's a real test. And I'm just starting to think about my new one now that I'm going to do next year at the Edinburgh Fringe. And I do feel that there is a certain amount of um, uh, physical well-being that you need to be able to perform in, in sport and on stage, you know, the brain and what you're putting to your body and everything like that is, you know, you've got, you've got to look after yourself in Pretty much everything you do, haven't you? Whether it's you know, if you're sitting down and going to try and write a column on on people at the Velodrome you've just seen, like you've got to be in in the right physical, mental
2: place, right? This is this might be a stupid question, but how on earth do you start writing an Edinburgh show? Like, do you start sort of formulating ideas in the head, or like, and is it quite stressful initially? And you sort of think, oh god, I'm never going to get come up with anything, or? Um, Well, for me, I. My main strength, when I was at school, I
0: realized that my main strengths were like art and drawing and things like that. So I've always come at it from kind of a like an art project kind of way. So I started doing um, my old creative. I used to work in advertising, like as a creative and um, my old creative director ran a poetry night. So I started doing um, poetry um, gigs and things like that in London. And. I went up to the Edinburgh Festival to do a short 10-minute set uh, every day, uh, this thing called the Big Comedy Breakfast. And I saw people were doing hour-long shows, and I thought, whoa, look, they're doing an hour, and I was doing 10 minutes. And I thought, what could I, what could I possibly write an hour on? But I wanted to do it. And I had just been to Lily White's, the sports shop on Piccadilly Circus, and upstairs they've got like a um, mountaineering section. Uh, of discount cardalls and all that, and I just bought this yellow burghouse jacket. Every time I put it on, it made me feel ever so slightly more happy. So I thought, right, what if I wrote a show all about the colour yellow, and called it the Yellow Show? How happy could that make me? So that was my first voyage into doing an hour-long show. Was I called it the Yellow Show? And I thought, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna try and write a show all about the colour yellow. And basically what I did was I put the word yellow in the middle of a spider diagram and then just went off on one. Like, I really love Grayson Perry, you know. And there was one time he was doing a program where he made this kind of, almost like a gingerbread house out in the country. And he said, I remember one thing he said was like, his favorite thing about being an artist is to be able to go off on one. And that's what I was doing. And what I've been doing ever since is just like going off on one about the color yellow. So that's what I did. It was called the Yellow Show. I sat on the Green, ma- on the, the green Mile, the, ro- the Royal Mile <laughs> in Edinburgh. And, um, and I was there and like I had a yellow paddling pool. And I got one of those yellow foam noodle things that you uh, have in swimming pools. And I sliced a... <laughs> A, a slice in the end with a Stanley knife, and I put like my flyers in the end. And I was sitting down in this yellow paddling pool thing with the and like holding the yellow show flyers out, and then people <laughs> come past and like I remember these kids like stealing the noodle me like, Ari, me, I'll give you a noodle, me. I was like, no, no. And, then, and then they took it and they were running down the street with it. And then but the the yin to the yang of that is like this lady came up to me and she'd like put a fiver in my yellow paddling pull or whatever I was like you've made my day the way you're flying there and I was like oh thanks so much you know? and know then but to answer your question I think it's just the case of for me I've got to I want to feel excited about what what I'm writing about and so to think can I do a show about the color yellow it was a good challenge and like I did it and I felt really good doing it and you know I was reading out of, of a book of the yellow pages. And uh <laughs> had, like big car sponges down my top and I was making them talk to each other and <laughs> taking up lots of yellow layers and then I had I made like 3D glasses, well, not 3D, they were they were called yellow vision glasses, and I made hundreds of pairs out of cardboard and just put yellow acetate in the frames instead of like the blue and red ones for 3D, and I gave them out to the audience as they came in. And so everyone was watching it through like yellow tinted glasses. I got a photo of like, it's like my mum and dad. <laughs> oh, yes. In the show. Brilliant. And um, that was in, it was a place called the Banshee Labyrinth on Nidri Street in Edinburgh. And it says um, Edinburgh's most haunted pub. And it was in a, um, it was in a, um, it's called the banqueting hall at the back, which is basically a cave that's about as big as this room um which is small for the listeners and um and if you imagine it being like a fifteen thousand seat seats stadium but um it, it held about 40 people and you know at the start no one was coming and then and then a few people came and then at the end it was kind of full and then i, I thought well you've got to be doing something right and the most powerful thing at edinburgh is word of mouth and like Nothing works better than someone saying to someone else in a queue, well, what have you seen? And I'm like, oh, we went and saw this, you know. Um, And then the year after that, I thought, right, I want to go up again. What am I going to write a show about this time? And I thought, write a show all about the sky, because I love love the sky. I love looking at the sky. Uh, So I called it the Sky Show. When I started doing poems, I um, wanted to follow my dreams, but you've got to have a job, right, um, to facilitate that for a few years. And I was working in an art shop. Um, so I was going up to Edinburgh, and I was working in the art shop, and then I – this is a bit of a tangent, by the way, if you think I could – We love tangents. Perfect. No, tangent the Perfect. The um, I was working in the art shop, and I was, I was on the tube, and I saw – a newspaper article about Carlos Tevez, the Carlos Tevez, the Man United, well, Man City, Man United, Argentinian striker, and um, he was going to be getting paid, I think two hundred, no, one hundred and twenty-five thousand pound a week, which is not much now for footballers, yeah. but back then that was like the biggest, most, and I thought, what if I got paid that? in the art shop. What if I had the perks of a footballer's job in the art shop and I wrote a poem about it? Shall I read it? Yeah, go ahead. love to. Yeah, please do. It's called uh, Footballer's Life for Me. I work in an art supply shop. I get paid £125,000 a week. Crowds of screaming fans gather at the windows of the shop, wearing, wearing replicas of my staff T-shirt that say staff on the back. <laughs> they cheer me on with my daily tasks through chant and song. Start those paint pots, start those paint pots, start those paint pots and sell them. If I sell a particularly expensive set of oil paints, the cheers can be heard right across Soho. Young children copy my unique method of stock-taking masking tape. And rival art <laughs> shops bid to get me on their books of watercolour paper. The injuries I suffer at work, such as paper cuts from cardboard boxes, are dealt with on the spot by the staff <laughs> physio. Oh, are you sh- are you sure you can continue to work today, Rob? Asked the physio. Yeah. <laughs> I can continue," I replied to the delight of my screaming fans <laughs> at the window. TV stations fight for the rights to televise footage from the shop CCTV cameras,
2: <laughs> so the
0: nation can see how I collapse the cardboard box, or inform a customer, "Yes, madam, I'm sorry. These are the only colours of pencil sharpness that we sell." <laughs> <laughs> so it's <laughs> not basically so. Very but, good, yeah, very good. When, when I'm in, <laughs> um, that's brilliant. And it's when you
1: only when you look at how absurd it is, the way we treat sports people or or you know any um walk of life where we idolise people, and you break it down. Like sport to me is such a, it's so wide open for for comedy <clears throat> analysis because we take it very seriously. We have very strict you know, outfits and bizarre things we put on or clubs or rules that are totally arbitrary. And it just seems, but we all accept it. We can go, oh yeah, it's totally normal um, for an adult to be sliding along ice with a, a smooth stone. And they can, you know, it's the biggest moment in their life if they can stop that stone in that little spot there or riding bikes around in anti-clockwise circles, doing that day in, day out for 20 years of your life. So you can get a little medal and a ribbon. You know, it's 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 ridiculous. I think that's why a lot of the Will Ferrell films have been so successful, because it does shine a light on how how silly we all are and how seriously we take it. But but sport at the same time, it's wonderful. And it can, you know, it's whether you're playing Monopoly with your family at Christmas time or Trickle Pursuits or whatever it is, you know, you, you gotta you've gotta invest in it emotionally for it to, to be fun, I think. And it's but it still means that it's ripe for the picking for for comedians.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that, especially with football, that feeling of community within crowds, fans travelling to games together, and just feeling like you're part of something is massive, isn't it? Mm. And just, like, travelling to a different country, you know, like the Newcastle fans in Paris the other day, and, like, it's just... um, you know i often have those feelings of what what are people going and seeing like this hugely paid guys kicking a ball around but that feeling of just being part of something and just giving those people are looking for the emotion right just to basically it's the market of making people trying to feel something Mm -hmm. like that's obviously massive business like if yeah. you can make someone feel something in a huge way that is going to make a grown adult scream and shout at the top of their voice because someone has done something, whether it be kick a ball, like that of flipping overhead kick the other day, like just, just go, yeah, like that, <laughs> it's, it's, it's huge. And the, where else can you get that, like, grown adults being out and kids you know that release of because we're all everyone's under so much pressure to just try to get through life like if you're watching something and you're at a stadium and it 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 gives you the license just to let rip and let that release of stress and just getting away from something is. I mean it's it's amazing to me and that's what when I watch football I, I do feel like that's why it's so important to so many people and you know people can say oh it's just blah 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 or like going and watching cycling or even last night in the snooker final people going and watching Ronnie O'Sullivan do that and like getting so invested in it and being like like yeah and just seeing someone put balls with a wooden cue into a hole it's like (laughs) it might seem like nothing but it's like nothing but it's everything at the same time isn't it very true i think it's
1: it's you're absolutely right it's the bringing together of communities or or people it's also the celebration of what human beings can achieve what they can do and you know things like i've talked about this before but gymnastics seeing what a human being can do and in a sport like gymnastics is is utterly it's mind-blowing you know when you think (laughs) it's just yeah it almost seems like a different species what some of these yeah. little gymnasts can do, the, the jumps and the twirls and the, the balance and the bravery and the skill and everything, the physical, just the, the scale of what they can do. It's, it's incredible. But yeah,
0: it's... It's, it's a fantastic uh, but, sport. It's, it's, yeah. it's such a good way to sh- give good examples of like what effort can achieve, like what results of effort. And I think for children especially, like seeing if you work hard at something and you practice, then this can happen. Like, if you apply yourself, like, I think sports, the clarity of the results of effort are just like, it's just crystal clear, isn't it? Of going, if you if you train and you really put yourself, your body through this, then you are going to see the results. And even for me, I don't really do much exercise, but I started doing um, press-ups. And I could only do three, like, six weeks ago. And now I can do 30. Right, and that might not seem like much, but it's. I, f- I feel stronger within myself. How many um, of those are Muhammad Ali press ups? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, like twenty seven. <laughs> <But laughs> okay, it's yeah. I it's um yeah. I I've got so much respect for um athletes and people because it it is as I we was saying. It, it's so clear to be like you can do this if you apply yourself, and I love like a lot of. I really love um sports interviews like i remember brendan rogers once saying when i think it when he was when he was a manager of liverpool and he was saying um hard work leads to confidence and confidence Mm -hmm. leads to success and you know i've got like things written on my wall like if you want it work like you want it and things like that and even though what i'm doing might be kind of alternative comedy or things like that like i still go into it feeling like come on you've got to try to prove yourself because i've, I've got like self-belief and I've, i feel like i could really make people feel things in a in a way that um i just want to uh try to apply myself to make myself feel like a like i'm i want to reach my potential you know but that's hard
2: to that's hard to do because like if you're in a football team or let's say like chris was in gb cycling setup you've got other people around you to push you and motivate you but you're just at your desk by yourself, like is that? That's a challenge, though, isn't it? Sometimes to to get that self motivation.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Especially with the invention of smartphones, I, I'm thoroughly addicted to my phone, and <laughs> um, I feel that. Uh, but I'm good working under pressure. So when I do these shows at the Soho Theatre in um, January, I will like from now until then. I'm going to be working so hard on trying to um, get the show exactly where I want it. And for me, the motivation comes from uh, fear, really, of going. I do not want to come away from those gigs feeling like I haven't tried my absolute best, because with the gig, like with the shows at Soho um, Theatre, I did my did the next show I did after the Sky Show was all about faces, and it was called the Face Show, and that's when I got um, signed to a management company in london and then they kind of opened the door to Soho theater to me and i was in the upstairs room that's about 80 capacity and then i did i did a show about faces in there then my next show was all about water called the water show i did sleep show all about sleeping up there in the upstairs room and i did my hair show up there it was all about hair and then (laughs) i moved down to the downstairs room that's a slightly bigger capacity which is 140 i think and I did a show all about uh, talking called The Talk Show. I did a show about time called The Time Show down there. And then I did my last show called The Crowd Show down there. And then this year, the comedy booker came to the Edinburgh show on a good day and it was full and it was buzzing. And he said, All right, we're going to put you in the main room, in the middle room where there's like a rake and it's a big stage. And like, so that for me is like, um, the uh result of like applying myself and going up the the steps you know so that the to try to motivate myself through self-motivation with things like that i've just got to be like right come on you've really got to not miss this opportunity because it's it's going to be a different thing there's going to be people thinking it's in the it's in the main room there must be something going on so for me it's like i've worked cause I always wanted to be in that middle room in the, in the main room. And I always thought I can get there and then, but it's that thing of never wanting to let myself down. And it's, I really feel that I've been doing this since 2007. Like that was the first time I did a gig. And then I've been doing it full time since 2012. And I was ready when I was doing that yellow show. I was ready. I was ready for like, okay where's my tv deal where's my radio deal? I was, but i wasn't i just i wasn't and like even now i feel like i've been doing it under the radar for quite a long time so now when i go and do comedy nights and people i say give me a cheer if you've seen me before and like one person might go yeah and then there's like a room of 90 people and none of them are seen me i'm like oh yes come on i've because i've been working so hard for so long to try to get not being arrogant but self-belief of being like going I'm good at this now like I've been working really hard and I feel like I can do a good set it's like just going into every gig, and trying to feel like come on you do not want to walk off stage and think you could have tried harder there you've got to leave it all on stage and it's the same with sport right of going just give it everything and see what see what the results are and like do it don't try to impress anyone just try to get inside yourself and like do it to express not to impress and things like that and um but day-to-day motivation for me is like you've just gotta um sit down and do the work and sometimes do it without passion and just do it when you don't want to do it and just be like just sit down get the words and try and make something happen like i, I started doing a daily podcast in t- 2020 that was every day was like a poem or story every day. And the best time, I mean, that was with, with the pandemic, and um, the best times I had was when I didn't want to write, and I sat down and I thought, I haven't got anything, and I just started writing. And then two hours later, I had maybe two or three things that I'd written, and I was so proud of myself because I'd, i would like, dragged myself into my own creativity almost by just getting myself in a headlock and going come on it's like training i imagine there's times you don't want to get on the bike or whatever and you're like oh just make yourself do it those are the times and i think that that's the difference as well of um being able to sustain anything it's like that i guess it's application right you're absolutely
1: right and i think it's 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 easy anybody can perform when they're motivated and and the notion that we're you know that champions or successful people are motivated all the time and how do you stay motivated you don't nobody's motivated all the time it's, you're absolutely spot on it's people who can still get up and grind it out when they're not motivated understand that it's just consistency and it's dedication to that and being disciplined um and it's but what i find what i find fascinating about comedy is the fact you could have you know objectively a very funny set that you are you're doing day in day out. You can perform it just as well every night, but but your metric is laughter, isn't it? You're you know a, a good or bad gig is dependent on the audience. So you could get up there and perform just as well as you did the night before, where you got you know rese- you know absolutely amazing reception. Everybody was laughing, got all the jokes, you know, and then you go and you're you, you've got a room full of people with their arms crossed, you know, sitting there with a face like thunder. Yeah. You've still done a good job, but you haven't the the outcome hasn't been what you'd hope, but the process, it could be the same. So I can't get my head around how, and, and yes, of course, you know, you, the comics are know how to change tack, but you, you've ultimately, you've got a set you're trying to um, perform, and you're dependent on the people in front of you who you don't know, you've never met before, you don't know what they're into. All you know is they've turned up at this gig, assuming you hope they've assumed that they're, they're turning up because they want to laugh and have a good time. But sometimes it seems the opposite. We were at a gig in New York a couple of weeks ago, comedy gig and the number of people you look around the room you know we were laughing our heads off. we look around there's a lot of folks just sitting there steely faced and you know you think they're, they're just pretty much not laughing and i don't know part of me thinks you've got to get in the spirit of it you've got
0: to have fun you're there to laugh why not why not at least start and see how you get on yeah it's difficult isn't it i think that's the thing it's like the more you do it the more tricks you kind of build up to turn a room into people who seemingly are enjoying it to try to pull every every trick out of your book to try to get them into the mood. Whereas I think as well, that the more I've done it, the more I've come to realize that I'm not, like you want to stand on stage and you want to be the center of the universe for an hour. But the reality of it is, is that everyone in that room has got something going on in their life, right? They might be thinking about, they might not be, even thinking about me when I'm on stage, they're just looking at me and their head is completely somewhere else. And that's probably me, my fault as a performer. I should be able to grab them and get their attention, which you can, but I've just I'm at peace with the fact that people might come to a show and yes, I want to give them a laugh and things like that, but they might have had some really bad news that day and they didn't want to come. And their partner said, Oh, come on, you might enjoy it, you know, or something might have happened at work. So when I look out into the crowd and like normally because i've built a bit of an audience now people are there and they're invested but what happens is that if if people like it like sometimes they say to their friends oh come along you know you might enjoy this and that like then there's pressure on the friends um because they've brought people along and they might have come on a really banging show one day and then their friends are there, and like what what's this and then <laughs> so you look out and like people are enjoying it and everyone always says you don't focus on them you only focus on the one person who looks like they're absolutely hating it (laughs) and i i did that in um i was doing a show in southampton above this it was called the arts cafe when i was doing my yellow show there so it was quite an early indicator of me never to do this again so i looked at i was looking and there was this guy on the front row and it was a it if I say saw so myself, it was a really good gig. I loved it. I loved that gig and everyone was loving it and it was amazing. But there was one guy on the front row who was just sitting there with a face like thunder the whole time. And I I wasn't bothered about everyone else who was enjoying it. I was just, I wanted to make him laugh. And he, did, he just wasn't. And then at the end, he came up to me and he was like, um, I just want to say thanks so much for that show. I really enjoyed it. I'm having a really bad time at the moment. And, um. Yeah, I just really enjoyed it. So from that moment on, <laughs> I just thought, wow. never again am I going to question... Um, uh, I'm I'm not going to give them the time of day, basically. I'm just going to try and be build myself up to be a, a robust enough performer so that those looks that people give you if they're not enjoying it, you just can't... Because if they, if they can smell blood and, like, it makes them want to not enjoy. It. It's like you've given them license not to enjoy it. Whereas if you just do your thing, then people kind of go, "Oh, well, he seems to be doing this with uh, conviction, so <laughs> we may as well believe him." Because if he believes it, then well, maybe I believe it. Whereas if you if you yeah. go and if you're unsure of yourself, it's like Stuart Lee, one of my favorite comedians. He says like audiences are like cats. If you try to stroke them too much and make them like you, then they just go away. Like if you act like you're not bothered, then they're round your legs. You know?
2: <laughs> That's very good. We we asked you about your well, you told us about your sporting high, that cricketing um, moment. Did we ask you about your sporting misadventure or anything calamitous in 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 that sphere? Or um, I mean, is darts a sport? Yeah. For well, this podcast, we- yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: We'll, we'll talk about anything. <laughs> There was one time when it, um, I was round at my mate's house when I was a kid and there was four of us and it was one of those early times, you know, when you're a child and um, your friend's parents would go away on holiday and four or five of you would go around and you'd just get into their drinks cabinet <laughs> and um, for the first kind of time in your life. And uh, we'd done that. And um, he, stupid, this is, I blame the parents for this. They had a dart board, darts board, in their conservatory So it was like glass panel, glass panel, wood panel, glass panel, glass panel. And anyway, we'd had something quite a lot to drink, and we thought it would be a good idea to see who could throw a dart at the dartboard the hardest. And we were um, really throwing it and trying to get the darts in as far. And I threw it and obviously missed, and just it went into a glass panel and it completely shattered, like a a dart shattering a full conservatory pane. And uh, so that was a squatting. No. Another one. <laughs>
1: just before you thing. go on, what what was yeah. what was the were you in more in trouble for drinking from the drinks cabinet or is it the, the shattered conservatory pain or both? What was what I was the reaction? It
0: was it was one of those things where we were just kind of sat in the living room. I vivid, vividly remember it and just thinking, who do we ring? At this like, what are we do? Coast guard. Like, yeah like what I like looking through um the yellow pages again and thinking uh, <laughs> oh yeah this these guys they comes and like and then I don't know what I can't remember what happened maybe we just boarded it up somehow but I don't know this it's funny isn't it with like I remember when it was just uh went round to my now wife's uh back garden flat and we it was the first time I kind of met her mum and dad really well, it was early on in the relationship. We were playing this game in the back garden, and it's a, it's a ball game. It's close enough to a sport to misadventure. <laughs> <laughs> and misadventure. Um, and it was a game where one person, well, say, say that there's a back lawn and there's a house, and you face away from the house in a line. One person is the person who's going to pick up the ball, the tennis ball, and then you say, go, and everyone runs towards the house. And then the person who's kind of it has got to pick up the tennis ball and throw it and try and hit someone who's running away, right? So I was, um, and this was a family occasion, I was um, I was the person who was it. And I said, go. And I picked up the ball and I turned around and I just threw it. I don't know what how I threw it as hard as I did. And it hit my now mother-in-law on the back of the head. And she, it, so hard must have shocked her and she fell over and face planted into the lawn and i was like oh okay this is bad and then she kind of got up and um was laughing and everyone was really laughing and i was like "Ah, oh, great this is gonna be okay i think and that, that was yeah it could have I, gone one of two ways
1: though it could
0: <laughs> yeah future <laughs> son-in-law
1: like- your cards marked
0: yeah, no, it was, that was brilliant. And did she get you back? I've got quite a lot of notes. Mo- I've got quite I've made made quite a lot of notes here. Wow! Oh wow! A football crowd
2: preparation.
0: I wish we did
1: something like
0: that, man. <laughs> <laughs> one thing I don't know if you can put this in the edit. So the um, one of my favourite things, my favourite probably thing to do with sport is you know at marathons when the runners have their names printed across their front like yep. their first yeah. names. <laughs> I just love going to watch people doing the, um, the marathons and shouting people's names that I don't know at the top of my voice. I just love that. And that feeling of just shouting, shouting someone's name. You don't know at the top. It it just gives me such a thrill. And like, um, yeah, being part of a crowd and just, I love the crowd mentality of things. And, um, I, I kind of wish that there was more of that in life in general of, um, cheering each other on i feel like um everyone wants everyone to be at least okay right i believe that i have to believe that like why aren't we encouraging each other in everyday situations the same way people doing sport like crowded supermarket massive queue at the self service checkout and people are shouting like come on you can do it you know <laughs> <laughs> it's but, like yeah. when you you know when you come to
1: the m6 toll and you've got you know 10 booths that you can choose to go in <laughs> I've got this knack of picking the one that the person at the front of the queue is either forgotten their card or <laughs> the machine's not working or whatever, <laughs> and you're, you're you're committed. You can't get out. there's a car behind you, and you're just like. But it's the people who blow the horn. It's like meh, yeah. as if the person doesn't know that there's a queue behind them and that you know they want to get through, they want to get out. They want to you know they don't want to hold people up, but it's the people that blow their horns. I just don't understand that. The opposite of tuning somebody on is like they're in a stressful situation they're trying to fix it clearly you blowing the horn and getting grumpy is not going to help the situation at all that that said
2: we're in Bristol where I live we've got Clifton Suspension Bridge and there's a toll across there and we were behind this car Again, there was a two-lane one, and we picked the wrong one. And the person there was there for ages. I was thinking, well, obviously, they're having some trouble or whatever. And I don't, I don't want to be that guy that hoots the horn. But after quite a long period of time, I just did a gentle toot. So it is so, you, Matt. Right, so, okay. but, no, but <laughs> what, what, what had happened? This old lady had just fallen asleep. No. <laughs> car. Well, it's the safest place to do it, I My suppose. My kids are in the back of the car going, I think you just woken her up. And you saw her sort of suddenly startled. And then Jeez. she went through, but there we go. So sometimes Probably she shouldn't be she, driving. Looting the horn can work, but yeah. yeah, probably she shouldn't be on the road. Gee whiz.
1: <laughs> if you fall asleep at the 10 seconds it takes to stop, get yeah. your purse out and find your credit
0: card. Yeah. Oh, well, so I hope she's having, okay.
2: Having a long day, I think.
0: With the football crowds one of my favorite times I was having her in a football crowd was when um it was such a boring game right and um, the crowd started chanting let's pretend let's pretend let's pretend we've scored a goal <laughs> and, <you> know, we... <laughs> and it was so it's like such a playful beautiful thing of like just like creativity and sport mixing and I love that when I I was at an England match once and people started throwing um, paper aeroplanes onto the pitch, and the biggest cheer of the game was probably when one was like "Go for ages!" <laughs> and um, I think that was, was maybe it was at the was it at the Olympics? It might have been at the Olympics. There's a there's a video on YouTube of these kids who tried to get a Mexican wave going, and they start it. And it's just their people in their section to like, first of all, it's the people next to them. And then, but they keep going. And this goes back to that perseverance thing of like believing that you can get something going. Cause that's what I did when I was starting. I was like, I believe that I can get some, make something happen here. And they, it was exactly the f- same thing. They were going, and it started. And then eventually it goes right around the thing. And then, <laughs> you know, it's just that believe to achieve mentality. And I do feel like that it's, it's explicit in sport, that thing of like, if you believe in yourself, you can really make something happen and apply in yourself. And,
1: um, oh, yeah. what a, what a wonderful thing, though, Mexican waves are amazing. And you think, yeah, two little kids, just because they wanted it to happen. In the end, you look around and you look at what you've created, this massive whole stadium with this huge bit that everybody is engaged with and enjoying it. It does help if the if the match is boring as well, with not, not much else happening. <laughs> yeah, Let, let's do a
0: Mexican wave. Yeah, no, totally. But I mean, what a That must have. I mean, was the Mexican waves in the velodrome? Yeah, I used to get them normally because the races are
1: so short, relatively speaking. Even the the endurance events are only on for ten minutes or whatever. So it tends to be in between the races, or you know, there'd be a, a lull, or if, if there was a sometimes. A, if you had a crash, a big crash, the bikes might damage the track, and because it's like boards, thin bits of wood, so they need to repair the tracks. So there could be a five-minute delay while they're fixing the track. Or so nobody's hurt. There's nothing bad happening, but the crowd are kind of wanting to create some entertainment. So often it would be the commentator that would instigate it, you know, start the the, the Mexican wave. But during the Olympics in London, it was mad. It was you know, such. It's a relatively small. Um, capacity, maybe five or six thousand people. So it's nothing like a football stadium. But because of the shape of the the roof and the ceiling and everything, it, it reflects the sound back in the acoustics. And also, they're really close to the action. So it feels really full of energy and full of noise and full of excitement. But there were people, you know, because it's so small, you can see the individual faces in the crowd. And there was like Paul McCartney, there was Kobe Bryant, there was all these, you know, the Prime Minister, Royal Family, amazing <laughs> people that we, you know, it was the hot ticket for that week was to get down the velodrome. Um, during the London Olympics so yeah when you see I don't know um, royal family members doing the Mexican <laughs> wave it's quite
0: it's quite bizarre Unbelievable yeah. I'm near that like live really close to the Olympic village mm. and just going through there every time I mean I lived in Walthamstow at the time and now we live just on the other side of Victoria Park in Hackney and what the you know I've been swimming in the Olympic pool quite a few times now and I just absolutely love it. I remember when um, my mum came down from uh, York and uh, she comes down, we go and see a show and it's like a yearly thing and she absolutely loves it and there was one time when I said, okay, let's go swimming in the Olympic pool and um, she jumped in and didn't realise that it was going to be as deep as it was and just completely went right down to the bottom (laughs) (laughs) and came up It was like ah (laughs) um, but it was it was amazing and i've seen them being in the olympic pool there and like i was in there once and the, i think it was the olympic or they were practicing diving off the top of the boards and it was just amazing and then i think the general public can book to go on those or at least the mid-level diving boards right Hmm. Yeah, incredible. I just what it's done for the area, still the Olympics, yeah. uh, Westfield and everything like that, it's just amazing.
1: No, I totally agree. And it, it's great when you compare to some cities that I've been back to, you know, that well, I've competed in, but Barcelona in '92 or even Athens in 2004, the, it's quite sad. There's areas in, within the Olympic Park that have just been left abandoned. It's kind of, you know, tumbleweeds blowing past and, and there's no, no or very little usage of the facilities whereas in London as you know Stratford it's just it's bustling it's it's exciting see what they've turned it into and the fact that yeah anybody can go and swim in an Olympic pool or ride on the Olympic velodrome or whatever you know it's it's like being able to just go and have a quick knock around at Wimbledon on centre court or (laughs) you know play five-a-side in Wembley or you know it's it's amazing that the public get access to these these sporting arenas where you know
0: major things have happened. Absolutely. I think, I mean, I just absolutely I love swimming. When I went to Melbourne and did the um, Melbourne Comedy Festival, they, they treat the performers quite well, and you get to go in and stay in a hotel and they had a swimming pool, and it was in there every morning. And I just felt so much better. It's obvious stuff, but it felt so much better um, after doing it. And I think one of the times when I was swimming in the Olympic pool, it's one of those like when I was on the exercise bike, I didn't realize how much kind of turmoil I've been putting my and stress, I've been putting my body under until you stop, you know, and then you're like you get <laughs> yeah. out. especially with sw- swimming, when you can barely stand, when you've been going so hard you can barely stand up afterwards <laughs> but as you say, that's where you need to get to with it. Exactly, exactly but listen, we've taken
1: up already over an hour of your time, really really appreciate you coming on our, our little pod and I hope uh, that was okay it's, oh, it's, it's great been fun. really great, great to chat and you're, yeah, I wish you all the best with this does it start in January or is it just straight after the New Year that um, uh, your your yeah, show starts?
0: End, end of January. it end starts January. In um, Soho, uh, Soho Theatre, and then traveling everywhere. Coming to Bristol, let me know if you want any comps or whatever. Oh yeah, definitely. amazing.
1: So. Amazing. Amazing. Um,
0: yeah, thank you so yeah. much. Well, listen,
1: good luck with it. I'm sure it'll be a massive success. And uh, yeah, keep up the great work. Keep. I'm following your Instagram, and I love your I love your clips on there. Brighten oh, up my day. You. Yeah, Brighten no. up my day
0: instagram's crazy it's because all you just need is like one to kind of catch fire and then i mean just because everyone's so on their phones now that if you get a video that goes viral then it can change everything <laughs> so that's what i'm anyway really good to meet you guys yeah likewise, so for having me. likewise rob all the best thank you thank you take care mate bye, bye